Ready? All right. Uh, good evening. Welcome. Uh, I want to throw out a couple things before we jump into the text uh, to kind of have you be on the lookout for. One is this question, who is uh, Jesus? Who is this Jesus that is being portrayed here in the gospel? And then also um, the contrasts that exist as we read um, through this section. So those are two things that, that uh, as we read through, you kind of want to pay attention to. So, oh, let's pray. I forgot. I almost, we, we would have lost all these people that wouldn't have shown up if I wouldn't have prayed. Uh, Father God, we just thank you for today and tonight and this time to gather and to open your word. Uh, we come to you with great reverence and appreciation for the love that you have for us and the compassion that you show each one of us. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon this place and this time in our lives and help us to understand and discern what it is that, that you are communicating to us. And so give us Give us wisdom and discernment. Give us patience with, with each other and with ourselves and allow us to extend the same grace and mercy to each other in our conversations tonight and in our lives that you extend to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, here we go. Chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel. Uh, after he had finished all these sayings, so we ended last week with the... Um, the Sermon on the Mount slash Sermon on the Plain, depending on how you categorize it. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not, did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man got, sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to say to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet, with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, you, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. 
Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, he who hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came and on the lake, came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time. He had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 
When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And the woman saw, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, some, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So, who is this Jesus is the question that we are asking that Luke is trying to give us an answer to as we see these stories unfold and as we look at the different interactions that he's having with the different characters. So, along with that, we see these numerous contrasts in the story. For example, we start the story with the centurion. And what do we know about the centurion? We know that the centurion is a man of great power, and of great means, and he is also a Gentile who is in support of the Jews. So he is a God-fearer who is in support of the Jews and has helped build their synagogue. Whether or not he used his means to support the, the project or whether he used his power to influence uh, what had happened, that is uh, unsure. But the next story, as we know, in Luke, as Janine had pointed out, when there is a man's story healing, what's next? A woman's story of healing. Now, it's interesting that we don't know the, uh, the gender of the servant, and we 
know that the healing is not of the woman, it's of her son, but in some ways it's the restoration of her. But what do we know about her? She's a widow. She has nothing. She has a son. She has an only son. And in this section, we see two different instances of individuals that have only children who both have died. Think, God has one son. In the end, his son dies, and his son is resurrected. Here we have two individuals who have one child each. Both lose them. Both are resurrected. Kind of an interesting illusion. But the widow has nothing. And so we see this contrast of somebody with great power and great wealth receiving the blessing of Jesus and somebody with nothing receiving the compassion and blessing of Jesus. But notice, Jesus isn't healing the centurion. He's healing his servant. So it's not that Jesus only cares about individuals that come to him. He cares about individuals who come on behalf of other people. Remember the story with the paralytic and how his friends brought him and Jesus says he sees their faith? And whose faith does he see see here that brings about the healing of the servant? The centurion. He says, I tell you not even in Israel, which is just a slam for Jesus to say, even in Israel, God's chosen people, there isn't a person like this Gentile who has this type of faith. And again, notice what happens or what is the posture in which the centurion comes to Jesus? What does he say to him? He says, we're not worthy. He quotes Wayne's world, right? He says, we're not, I'm not even worthy that you would come into my house. So he comes with this deferential idea to say to Jesus, I know who you are, and I know that I am not worthy, but what did the Jews say about him? He is worthy. See that up there in verse 4? So we see this contrast. Again, the people that are supposed to get it, the Jews, they're like, clearly this guy is worthy because he has power and he's helped God's people. And the centurion himself says, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. And then we see soon afterward, kind of an interesting phrase, Jesus raises to life this woman's son, in essence, restoring her family to a wholeness and her life to wholeness. And if you were here on Sunday, you heard Jana talk about this idea of compassion and how do we have compassion and see compassion. And I love that the, the ESV uses that. He had compassion on her. But notice what happens. How does this come about? Does someone go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have to heal this, this person because she's a widow? Does she see Jesus and say, Lord, please raise my son back to life? No. Jesus sees her, has compassion on her, and performs this miracle. So we see someone going on behalf of someone else with a direct request, and then we see the opposite of that in uh, the woman. And again, it begs the question for us, what, what is the posture that we come to Jesus with, and who do we see Jesus as? 
And do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because John comes with the next question. John sends two of his disciples to go and to ask Jesus, basically what? Who are you? Are you the person? And remember back, you know, we have the baptism and and the whole descending of the dove, and we have John in utero, and we were all excited that John in in his mother's womb recognizes who Jesus is. And then here, John is like, I'm not sure you are who we thought you were. Because they're expecting something completely different. Their version of Messiah is somebody who's going to come, who's going to take over, who's going to push out the Romans, who's going to bring back the, the power of Israel, the, the mystique of Israel, and our Messiah is going to do that, and Jesus isn't fitting the bill of the Messiah. So his own cousin is like, I'm not sure we got this right. I'm not sure I believe that you are who you are. And rather than responding, Jesus responds by doing what? He's like, are you wondering who I am? Watch this. Heal, 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 heal. Other questions? He answers with a non-answer, and he says that the kingdom of God, when it advances, this is what happens. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And again, one of the things that we keep wrestling with is why is it that the Gospels are chock full of all of these healing events and, and these cleansing of demon-possessed people, and yet as we live today in our world, we struggle with whether that is still a reality. Can God still do this? Is Jesus still doing this? And, we, and the one breath we say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus healed a bunch of people. Done. And part of that comes out of this wrestling and struggling that we have, Right? with praying and praying and praying and seeking God out and asking him to heal, and not all of those prayers are answered in the way that we want them to. And so we wrestle and we have this this tension in our brains to say, does this still happen? Is Jesus still the same today? And why am I not experiencing the things that they experienced then? And it's just... It's a fascinating question. Yes? Well, I'm pretty sure we all live in America. Well, it depends on what part of the world you're in. What I'm saying is, I can only speak for our context, and from my experience, not a lot of people that exist in, in um, the churches that I'm a part of have a real high belief in healing ministry. I mean, I've grown up my whole life in North American Baptist churches and Baptist General Conference churches, and the, the idea of charismatic healing is something that we struggle with or don't agree with. 
And yes, does healings happen around the world? Yes. Do I believe healings happen in the U.S.? 100%. And I think there's also times when we pray desperately for healing and it doesn't happen. And so then we're left with this tension. Do I want to do this again? And one of the questions last week was, right, is my faith contingent on the results of my prayer? And if you've ever prayed for somebody for your whole life and God hasn't answered the prayer the way you want him to, that can be a deficiency. So then he does this little thing about, uh, about who John is and the importance of John, and he starts to introduce this idea of who is the greatest in the kingdom. And he says, uh, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John, and John's super great. And it's this homage back to the Beatitudes, which I'm sure at least someone may be memorized. That was a spiritual practice for last week. And then we go into this, uh, one of the Pharisees, that the, the perception is the Pharisees have been listening to this, and he invites him into his home, and so he goes into his home. And again, we see this interesting contrast between the Pharisee and this woman. The woman is unnamed. And yet she plays this crucial role. Now, if you remember back to Matthew's gospel, and in the end, Matthew uh, tells us a story about uh, this woman coming in and anointing Jesus' feet and referencing the fact that he's being anointed for burial. And there becomes an interesting dialogue around, is this the same story in a different place, that Luke's choosing to use it in a different place for a different reason? Or is this a secondary story? Great question. A lot of speculation on that. What is the point of this story? The point is this woman, when asked who is Jesus, she's not asked it directly, but she shows it. She goes in, she hears he's there, and she responds. Now, we have this image again. I know we've joked about it around uh, communion. It's like as if everyone sat at banquet tables facing the audience during communion and chairs. They would have been laying on the ground on on. Uh, you know, cushions or rugs or whatever. And so Jesus would have been facing the table with his feet behind him so this woman can come in and his feet are there and she doesn't approach him face to face. That becomes an interesting thing here because she doesn't believe that she can come to his face. She believes that she can come to his feet. And so she comes to his feet and she immediately is overwhelmed by even being in his presence. And she's brought to tears, and she brings this ointment, and she spreads the ointment to anoint Jesus' feet. And she brings her tears to wet his... I mean, think about it. When you, all summer long, when you just wear, like, your sandals, like, for me, I don't... I hate shoes. I actually hate shoes. I hate socks. Unfortunately, we live in Minnesota where you kind of need to wear them. Some of you are like, I, this, this is a new revelation. Surprise, not a big fan of shoes. Um, but in the, then in the summertime, you like are wearing your sandals, and a lot of times you're not even wearing shoes, and then your feet are cracked. I mean, just when we lived in New Mexico in the desert, it was like, literally, you're like, what does that sound? It's the moisture being sucked out of my body. That's what it was. So imagine what that would have felt like to Jesus' feet. Does she ask anything of him? There is, 
literally no words spoken out of her mouth. There is only action and there is only worship and deference to who Jesus is. And Simon, this person who's supposed to get it, doesn't get it. And this woman who is described as a woman of the city gets it. And how does Jesus respond? He forgives her sins. And remember last week when he forgives the sins of the paralytic and this belief. This isn't, I'm forgiving your sins because you need healing. This is, I know what you've been through and I'm here to forgive you and welcome you into communion and fellowship with me. She doesn't ask. All she does is worships him. She falls at his feet and she rubs this ointment on his feet and she cries at his feet and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I mean, imagine what that would have been like for her. I mean, we don't exactly live in like major metropolitan area and if something happens, uh, oftentimes word gets out that we've done something or somebody notices something, or whether it's in the paper, if you, you would be known as this woman is known in the story. And so she enters the house, and imagine the stares and the comments that she gets. And look what Jesus does. He acknowledges her, and he forgives her. And then right after that, we get another reference to women, right? He references the women that are with him by name. He says, And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, many others who what? Provided for them out of their means. And I know it seems like I just keep beating this horse, but when the text brings it up, it is so right in front of our face. Nijay Gupta talks about it in his new book, Tell Her Story. Scott McKnight talks about it all the time in his book, The Blue Parakeet. Beth Allison Barr, she has a whole thing, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. God cares as much about women as he does about men. Women played as much of a role in the early church and in Jesus' ministry as men did. Women are equally as important in the kingdom of God. Period. Period. These women have money. (laughs) These women have resources. The 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, have nothing. (laughs) How is it that Jesus is able to do what he does? As somebody said at the homelessness uh, event on Sunday for Bridges, Jesus was homeless. The apostles, homeless. These ladies, they ain't homeless. They have means. Likewise, when we move into the New Testament further, who's hosting people and and churches in their homes? Women, if you're hosting a church in your home, you're leading the church. Women were leading the early church. How many times do we have to say this? It's right there in Scripture. 
I'm not sure if women should have the same authority as men. Doesn't say that in the Bible. Well, it says in Paul, okay, that's an occasional letter, which is a different conversation. In the Gospels, we know that women have power and influence and are caring for Jesus better than the men are. (laughs) We just had two examples Simon Peter, you think you're so important. You have this nice house. You throw a great party. You miss it. This woman of the street has nothing. She gets it. These women, they get it. They give to Jesus. Again, we talk about this idea of giving of our means to the kingdom of God. It's right there. It's right there. And then we go on almost to this new breath because we see this, and, and when a great crowd was gathering. So we have moved from this location of in the Simon's house, this reference to the women becomes this bridge into this new thing. This crowd is gathering, and Jesus gives this parable, this parable that many of us know about the seeds. It's falling on good soil and, and somewhat suspect soil and rocky soil. And then he explains the parable. And what he's talking about here is not that the quality of of seed is different. What is different between the three locations of the soil? Acceptance, but the environment in which the seed is planted. And and I've I've joked about this. I've planted many a food plot (laughs) trying to... uh, Entice the deer into my deer stand. And then the DOT plants something up on the side of the road up here that if you ever drive down 13, you're like, hello, what is up with the soil and the seed that is planted on Highway 13? I want that by my deer stand. The environment in which the soil is planted is the key. Because even the seed that sprouts and produces a little bit of fruit is placed in a position where the world becomes more important. Where the world chokes out the growth of that plant. And it does start to produce fruit, but then that fruit does not come to fruition. And I think it's very interesting because right after that, we see this encounter where Jesus' mother... And his brothers come to him, and he says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so we have this interesting connection about the importance of where our, our seed, the seed of God, is planted in our lives, where we position ourselves environmentally, and who we surround ourselves with. And I know we've talked about this before. We talked about it with the paralytic. We see it with the centurion. Are we surrounding ourselves with individuals who will bring us to Christ, who will help keep the weeds down in the area of our lives that we need to keep it down, which is everywhere? Are we surrounding ourselves with a family of God that isn't family by birth, but it's family by choice? It's not family by birth, it's family by choice and family by obedience. Because Jesus says something that that to us doesn't really seem that big of a deal. Because again, we don't live 
in a world where family is, is as important as it is in other places around the world where family is everything. And your elders are important, and your elders, you know, you keep your family close, and, and everyone else is kind of at the periphery. And Jesus says here, I mean, he drops this revolutionary comment that my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. The family of God is the person who hears and does. And for some reason, we often miss that. We miss the secondary part of that. Because earlier, he talks not about hearing. It's not that we aren't hearing. It's how are you hearing in verse 18. He says, take care then how you hear. And I know we talk about this regularly, right? Like, you guys are the choir. No, we're not going to start singing. You know, it's, it's, it's the challenge, though, right? How when we hear the word of God, and how do we hear it, and does that hearing result in an actual change in our lives? And that's where we talk about this idea of engaging not just in content, but in action. And so when we talk about this idea of outreach, it's not just gleaning content. It's actually inviting people to join us. It's actually saying to our neighbor or who we work with or a friend that might not have a church home, saying, hey, would you join me? Would you join me on this journey of faith? It's coming into contact with, with the words of Jesus and saying, Jesus, I hear you, and I know that, that doing this thing is going to be super hard, but hearing without doing doesn't make sense, and so I, I'm hearing you, and I'm actually doing what you have called me to do. And that is what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Because it's one thing to hear, it's another thing to actually do. And out of that, we get this other story, and again, we're not talking chronologically, but Luke has gathered it in a particular way for a particular reason. We get the storm event, right? He says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they're on the lake. The storm comes up, and, and there's this big storm, and, and they're terrified, as you would be if you've ever been on big water in a storm. It's terrifying. It's really terrifying. And most of us have motors, so we're not even worried about the wind. It's terrifying, especially if you're on it with um, your loved ones. Terrifying. And so they wake Jesus up. And he asks them a question. Now, it's interesting, and I know we went through this process last year, and, and it's this exercise of um, you kind of have to just go with it a little bit. But uh, I'm, I'm very curious around what is the tone of voice that we hear when we are reading this passage of Jesus. Because I think oftentimes that tells us so much about how we are viewing who God is and the voice that Jesus speaks to us. And John Walton, not Bill Walton's brother, different guy, he says this, and it's a quote that I heard today when I was listening to the Holy Post, which is a Wednesday thing for me. John Walton says, we need to know what we see in Scripture, rather than just see what we know. 
We need to know what we see rather than just see what we know. And that's where this gets tricky because for me, I have this part that is extremely critical and I've been working with my therapist on it. And it, the tone of voice that Jesus uses here is the tone of voice that I use with myself and it's not real pleasant. It's condescending, it's rebuking, it's challenging, it's you are such an idiot, I can't believe that you woke me up. Do you not believe who I am? When in reality, I think Jesus is this compassionate person, the same man who sees the woman and her son, has compassion on her. He is awakened and he sees his disciples. He sees their terror. He calms the storm and he says to them with compassion and love in his face, where's your faith? And the disciples are like, we don't know. We don't even know who you are. And again, we see the disciples. If you ever, when asked a trivia, like a multiple choice question, um, who do you see yourself in the Bible? Like Pharisee, uh, disciple, uh, random sinner, Jesus. Those are your options. Most of us would be like, yeah, I'm like a disciple because they're, like, they're pretty good. You know, they're like good characters and, and all this and they follow Jesus. Except that they aren't represented real well. <laughs> Jesus has lots of compassion on them. They don't really get it. Because they say, who is this person? And then the next story, they're on shore. This demon-possessed man comes up to Jesus. And what does he say? Yeah, what do you want from me? I know who you are. You are the son of the most high God. The disciples don't know who Jesus is. The demon is like, I know who you are. I mean, just think about that. And Jesus heals this man. And what does he say to him? Well, first of all, the people are like, well, that's amazing. Could you do some more? No, they're like, uh, excuse me, you got to go. They say, please leave. Isn't that the case, though, sometimes? We see the power of Jesus, and some people are like, I'm not ready for it. I can't handle it. I need you to leave. And Jesus doesn't force his way in. He simply gives the man instruction, which is what? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Hold that thought. So the crowd around the, the demon-possessed man in the Gerizines is like, you got to go. What does the next crowd do? See this contrast. So they get in the boat. They go to the other side. The crowd is ready and they welcome him. How amazing is that? We see how different people are receiving Jesus and what happens when people receive Jesus. Because the crowd on the garrison side rejects Jesus. This crowd receives Jesus. And what happens? Two miracles. Boom, boom, done. Again, we have this only daughter. Jairus comes to him. It's going to take a while to get there. They're surrounded by all these people. And notice this woman that touches him, Luke tells us that she has spent all her living on these physicians. She's given everything she has to be healed. Did you notice the connection? 
The daughter's 12. She's been suffering for 12 years. It's this imagery of almost a whole lifetime, it feels like, that she's been suffering with this thing. And how does she approach Jesus? She comes from behind, yes. I'll give you a clue. Whenever I ask a question, chances are it's right here. (laughs) Luke says, she came up behind him and she touches the fringe. She doesn't even touch his full garment, but she knows, she knows who Jesus is and she knows the power that resides within Jesus and she just barely touches him and instantly Her whole life is transformed. She is instantly healed. And what does Jesus say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Faith playing this key component in how we approach Jesus. There is this deference and this worship and this acknowledgement. And we have so often slid on this this sliding scale or moved on this pendulum that Jesus is our homeboy. We make Jesus so like hip and cool and approachable. Like, yeah, I'm just going to go spend some time hanging out with my, my guy, Jesus. Because it's for who knows why, like great marketing tool, super interesting, different approach for who God is. And these people are like, this is the almighty God. Notice the different uses of of titles for Jesus. Sometimes it's teacher, sometimes it's master, other times it's Lord. Here, she knows. Who is this Jesus? He is my lifeline. He is my way to salvation and to healing. Yes. Why does Jesus say, who touched me? Um, Well, You'd think he know. I mean, he's God after all. It's one of those things where, you know, when we talk about keeping the tension between the humanity and divinity of Jesus and tension, you know, of course the disciples are like, are you kidding me? It's like, this is more crowded than a Taylor Swift concert or a Travis Kelsey football game. Like, it's just packed, right? Like, I mean, is that going to get old? Is it already old, Nick? Should we end it? It's, yeah, what are you talking about again? I'm sorry, I was checking on the twin score. Are we winning? <laughs> Why does he make the point? I surmise for two reasons. He wants to make the point because he wants to show how much this woman means to him. And he also wants to make the point to say, see, when you know and realize who I am, things happen differently. And so, yes, he senses, you know, he's being pressed in on. He senses that, that this power has left him, which is just a peculiar phrase. And he stops, and he wants the crowd. Obviously, Jesus stops, everyone stops, and the crowd kind of clears around, and he's like, who touched me? And now this woman is on display, not because she's done something magical, not because she's important in the, in the grand scheme of how the people would see her as important. Honestly, the people would see her as what? Unclean. Like, she shouldn't be there. Like, 
if we touched her, she's bleeding. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Now I'm unclean. Now I got to, it's like, you are a problem that I need to avoid. And Jesus says, no, you are a person that I need to touch. How often do we do that? We don't see people as people. We see people as problems that need to be solved rather than people that need to be touched by Jesus. And our lives are so busy to get on to the next thing. Jesus is on his way to an emergency. Can you imagine that? Like, you're on your way, you know, you're like, you're on the side of the road and you've got a flat tire or something and the ambulance comes flying by and pulls over. They've got their lights and sirens on because somebody's dying and they stop and they're like, oh, do you need some help fixing your tire? Pick up a hitchhiker, like, you need a ride? Everyone's like, what is even happening? And then they're like, don't even bother, she's dead. And Jesus says, no. What does he say? Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And he goes in, and he doesn't go in by, his, by himself. He brings in her parents, and he brings in three of the apostles, which is the start of this interesting experience for them, and he brings her back to life. And she restore, he restores this family back to life. And the importance of that to that family is unmistakable. And then what does he do? Speaking of contrasts. No, what does he say? Don't tell anybody. Like, can you imagine that? Like, your daughter was dead. She's alive. Yes, and there's other people. Like, oh, keep this a shh, shh. But again, look at how Luke is using these contrasts because the demon-possessed guy is healed and Jesus says what? Go tell everybody. Little girl brought back to life. And he's like, shh, it's a secret. It's just fascinating. Classified, yes. You're on a need-to-know basis and you don't need to know, Right? Thank you guys for hanging with this. I know it's just so much content. Part of it is I think it's helpful for us to see it all in one setting. Um, You're like, well, what about this? And what about, yeah, great question. We haven't even talked about demon possession one time. And it's like, I'd love to talk about it. We will talk about it. But right now we're going to go and discuss uh, more questions than you have time for. So you can go to your groups.